looking for cheap thrills. Don't go looking for love. Welcome to the Fringe Collective Podcast. I'm Michael J. Johnson, your host. The song you're hearing underneath me is the song Fake Book by The Knockups. My guest today is Gretchen Shea, singer, songwriter, guitarist, activist, assistant professor at Berklee College of Music, and founding member of The Knockups. I did this interview several months ago, so some of the material we talk about may be slightly out of date, but I think I edited most of that type of thing out. You can find The Knockups music on Apple Music and Spotify and all the normal places. They are on Facebook at facebook.com slash the knockups. They are at Bandcamp at the knockups.bandcamp.com. A couple gigs they have coming up on August 10th. They'll be at the Once Ballroom with No Small Children. And August 17th, they will be performing as the band Whole at O'Brien's. So please enjoy my interview with Gretchen Shea. Okay, I'm uh, interviewing Gretchen Shea of the Knockups. Welcome, Gretchen. I just want to start by where you're from and how you really got into music. Sure. Well, I was born in Haverhill, Mass., and I was born to a mom who absolutely was a music fan from head to toe, loved the Beatles, loved the Rolling Stones, loved Led Zeppelin, actually slept outside to see Led Zeppelin when they played at the garden. And so music was just always around in my house. Um, I have vivid memories of the White Album, you know, uh, the cover of the White Album. And I just absorbed music. And my mom's best friend, her boyfriend is a musician called Johnny Earthquake. And they are my, my mom's best friend and her now husband, are my godparents. So when I was babysat for the weekend, I would go to New Hampshire and stay with my godparents. And my godfather, being a musician, noticed how much I loved music and liked to sing. Uh, so when I was about four years old, my mom and my godparents took me to see Elvis Costello downtown uh, at the Boston Common. And it was an outdoor show, and I was probably one of the youngest kids there. And on the way back to the car, I was singing, red shoes, the angels want to wear my red shoes. And people were stopping my mom saying, she's so cute, you know, that I was singing Elvis Costello. So I think that's really where the seed was planted going to a live show. And although I have no memory of that, <laughs> my mom said that, you know, I was definitely affected by that. Yeah. So it's where the seed was planted, I'd mm -hmm. say. <laughs> and then when did you start playing the guitar? When I was 15, I got really into punk music. And my godfather said, okay, you want to learn how to play? And so he had a Hofner bass uh, that was a rip off, you know, it wasn't a real Hofner bass. And so he taught me how to play, you know, just some basic strumming, like Ramones yeah. type bass lines, nothing too intricate, but I loved it. And he got me a silver tone bass as a, as a gift one year. And I started taking music lessons at the Haverhill Music Store. And uh, I remember learning Take Me to the River because, you know, Tina Weymouth, that's such an yeah, yeah. introductory baseline. And uh, but all through high school, I tried to be in bands and nothing really worked out until I got to college. I went to college for musical theater, but the program was really only able to do musicals every other year. Mm. So I was like, the heck with this. I'm going to form a punk band. And that's what I did. And that's in 1993. And the band was called Black Barbie. And, you know, it was made up of Salem State students because uh, that's where I ended up going for my undergraduate mm -hmm. degree. And uh, I switched my major to English and put theater as a minor uh, and just played out as much as possible. We said didn't say no to any gig. Um, we played at Mamakin, you know, at the yeah, Aerosmith yeah. Club. Uh, we played at the Rat, TT the Bears, the Middle East, all the local uh, venues. And um, we're fortunate enough to open up for Letters to Cleo. 
Oh, wow. At Salem State, which yeah. was great. And uh, I don't know if you know Power Man 5000. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So all the 90s, you know. Yeah. And then our big, another really big, cool break was we got to open for Wayne Jane County oh, yeah. at Mamakin in the back room. So because we had played the front room a couple of times and we did pretty well. And so when Wayne Jane County came, they asked us to open. And, you know, I was like nice. so excited because, <laughs> you know, legendary punk rock Wayne. Wayne yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really how I kind of was self-made, I guess you would say. Uh-huh. And were you still playing bass then or had you switched to guitar? No, I was playing bass all oh, through okay. college and writing. I wrote songs on bass. I wanted to play guitar, but when I started the band, you know, the other person in the band wanted to play guitar. So it was, okay, I'll stay on bass. <laughs> it's always harder to find a bass player. <laughs> right, right. And I miss playing bass sometimes. Yeah. My my now bass player is phenomenal. And she, yeah. you know, she's amazing. That's her principal instrument. So, but I sometimes we switch to, to have fun and it's like, oh yeah, I remember this is fun. <laughs> yeah. So if you were a music theater major at the start, then you even took like voice lessons and stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So prior to going to college, um, I studied voice and I did intense opera for a year where the teacher who was a former opera singer, she was in her seventies. She would not let me sing any songs. It was all breathing exercises. She said no singing for a year. (laughs) So it was very intense. Yeah. And um, she's very strict. Um, I'd like to think that that has helped me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, I sing in a punk band. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, one thing that. But the breathing, though. Yeah. And one thing that s- annoys me, no matter what music you do, is I can't stand when people mumble. You know, I write lyrics because I want people to hear the lyrics. And so when people mumble and you can't understand a word they're saying, I think, what is the point of yeah. writing lyrics if people can't understand them? So I feel like I've carried my musical theater into my my stage show to this day, you know? Yeah. Did your classical voice teacher know you were singing rock? Or did no, okay. no. At, no, at that time, I was just doing theater. Oh, you were just doing theater. Yeah, okay. because I didn't really get in a band until college. So okay. I was about 19 when I was finally in a band. So, and then theater took a backseat and like I said it was just nonstop playing out we played from Boston up to Canada and that was you know very intense time in my life because I was in college and I was you know just working little jobs but I could devote 100% of my free time to music so Mm -hmm. that's what we did you know and so this was really at the beginning of Riot Girl Yes, exactly. It was. Yeah. 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 So my band was called Black Barbie. And the reason for the name was, you know, as a young woman, I I was obsessed with the show Fame. Do you remember Fame? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I remember asking my mom to take me to Zares, which doesn't exist anymore, because I wanted a Black Barbie. Mm. And we had a difficult time. There was one choice. And I just thought, this is horrible that there's one choice, because I wanted Coco. That was the the yeah the actress on the you know the the character, and um, so I thought like this is wrong, and so I have told this story many times, and one of the members of my band said that's the band name Black Barbie, yeah. So it just sort of stuck. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So that went on for about four years, and then you know as you know after college life changes and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I took a bit of a hiatus from music at that point. And then the guitar player from that band passed away suddenly. And so uh, his mom and someone from WMWM, the radio station at Salem State, reached out to me and said, we want to do a benefit show for Joe Kelly. Would you be interested in playing? And I hadn't played in five and a half years. And I was like, can I do this? Can I do this? And I just took what we had recorded, which was what I had left was we had put out a seven inch, but I'd given the seven inch to my mom, but I had tapes, you know, cassette tapes. So I have a little spare room, music room in my my house. And I played to that cassette, stood up, played to that cassette for a month and rehearsed with the band. And we did about a eight song set at the Memorial concert. And a friend of mine 
when I was leaving, I was I had borrowed a bass from my godfather, actually. Yeah. And they had come to the show and supported me. And when I was leaving, a friend of mine whose name is Harry, he's in a band called Popgun, he grabbed my wrist and he said, Gretchen, do not give up playing again. So I'm grateful to him because he said, Don't, don't give it up. So that's how the beginning of the knockup started. Yeah. Okay, so now talk about that. So what did you do yeah. then? So um, I had played with a band called A Terrible Beauty, which was more of a shoegazy type thing. And when mm-hmm. that fell apart, uh, the bass player of that band, you know, she was interested in riot girl music as well, as you say, and, you know, female-fronted punk bands. So she and I wrote some songs for the knockups as sort of like a parody, if you will. Like, a, it was kind of a joke at the time. The song, the first song that I wrote was called Knock You Up, and it tells the story, you know, of a young woman who falls for the whole, do you want to be a star, baby? Uh, that's the whole premise of the, yeah. of the song, and the, and the message is to young women, you know, follow your dreams and don't get derailed, you know? And so uh, that was a joke. And then when the other band, A Terrible Beauty, disintegrated, we decided to really do the knockups. So that's how the knockups were born. And then uh, that bass player left in 2015, and Kat, who is my bass player now, yeah. um, was in a band called The Four Point Restraints. Mm. And I had seen her play, and she played a five string, amazing, not punk rock style, more you know indie rock. She's phenomenal. But um, I asked her because my former bass player had quit a week before a New York gig. Oh, and wow. as you know, you don't cancel gigs in New York no. because, as they say, you know, you'll never play this town again, baby, yeah. <laughs> right? So I reached out to Kat. I said, can you play this gig for us? I will pay your way. And she came in to practice with charts. I was blown away. Yeah. <laughs> I was just expecting. I sent her the songs. And, you know, I was please. in my, my mind, I was just like, hopefully she'll play with us. She'll continue to play with us. And she did. <laughs> and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> and then she she formally joined the knockups. And so she's been with me since 2015. It's been four years. Yeah. And she has an undergraduate in, <laughs> in, in, in punk rock now. Yeah, so right. she now plays a Rickenbacker. No more five string. <laughs> she plays that in her leisure. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's sort of how uh, Kat came to be in the band. So you play a Rickenbacker. I do, what, I do. What made you decide on that guitar? Yeah, well, I have a Fender Jaguar that I really love. It has humbuckers in it, so it's loud. But I had bought a Silvertone because I still always have that love for the Silvertone. Yeah. And uh, But it just didn't work with the band. It, it just, no matter what, like with my effects, and it just didn't cut through correctly. And so um, my my boyfriend is actually in a Beatles tribute band called Studio Two. And he had a Rickenbacker that he doesn't use because the Rickenbacker is red and everything they do is to spec. So that Rickenbacker was just lying around and they lent it to me. <laughs> yeah. So I've sort of been playing it ever since. Um, and I do... I have a, a telly that I like. I love the sounds for the telly. And ideally, there are certain songs that are more quiet, more melodic. I'd love to switch to the telly. But when we play on a bill with three other bands, I just feel like it's disrespectful It's a to switch guitars if you don't have somebody sitting there ready to yeah. hand you over the guitar, which that's a luxury when you have that. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I generally do not switch guitars when we play. I've been playing the Rickenbacker for uh, a year now. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I love it, but it's sort of become our thing that people are like, oh, they both play Ricks. Yeah, you know? yeah. So while we're talking about that, kind of what's what's the rest of your rig? 
Um, so I use uh, a Vox AC15. However, <laughs> my daughter got me an AC10 for Christmas. And believe it or not, you know, when you crank it, it produces some lovely feedback. And I recorded with that amp about two months ago. And we use that amp to record. I've used it to play gigs. You know, if it's a small room, then I've been using the AC-10 and it, it's great. But I also use an MXR and then I use an OCD, you know, for that extra boom. And I use a uh, small stone, uh, electroharmonic small stone for like the chorusy type and then a delay, you know, cause on some things I do very minimalistic, the edge type solos. So I love the delay for yeah. that. Yeah. And that's it. I'm not too, I don't use a phaser or anything. I'd like to, but you know, nothing too crazy. We're a three piece yeah. and we've talked about a, a lead guitar player, but it's one of those things where people say you don't need it, you know? So it would be nice maybe one day if the right person comes along. Yeah. So, but for now, you know, it's something I feel like, and this isn't to, to say that it's not great to have, you know, the four people in the band lineup, but I feel like there's something so raw and organic about just three people. You can't hide behind anything. If I make a mistake, I own it because there's no other guitar player to fill in that sound, yeah. you know? And so, I don't know, it's a thing that Kat and I have wrestled with, you know, we've thought about it and then we're always kind of hemming and hawing. <laughs> yeah. Let's back up a little bit because I forgot to ask you, you talked about your early musical influences, but I know that, that you're, for instance, love Bowie. Yes. When did you discover Bowie? Okay. So again, my mom played a huge role in introducing Bowie because in 1987, she had tickets to the Glass Spider tour. Mm. And I was at that point a Beatles, Monkeys maniac. And I didn't give a toss about Bowie. And he's like, come on, come on. You know, you'll enjoy the show. And you want to talk about change the trajectory of your life. My jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. And we had bleacher seats. So we weren't on the ground. And I was just blown away with the fact that it was a rock and roll show where there was dance and there was a story, and, you know, as Bowie is so famous for, it's a show when you go and see Bowie. It's not a rock concert where there's all these choppy breaks. It is a very fluid storytelling. And I left with my mind completely blown and began to use my allowance money because I would get, you know, five, $10 a week allowance. And every week I would go to the record store and get something new. And I worked my way through collecting Beatles, you know, worked my way through collecting monkeys, um, some of which were my mom's. And then I would fill in, you know, what she didn't have. Yeah. And then that was it. I bought Hunky Dory with my own money <laughs> and then proceeded to collect all the Bowie and just couldn't believe for each album how there was a show or a character that he developed that I found that fascinating and that hence my my love for Bowie and I I'd like to think with my own work like for example the knockups I always say to people when they ask me about the band that imagine if the the housewives of the early 60s could talk about sing about what they wanted to and didn't have songs written for them by men, what would they say? So that's kind of the, you know, the imagery that I try to, you know, portray in the knockups with the like early sixties petticoat, you know, dresses. Some sometimes, sometimes we go rock and roll, but that was something that I feel like I got from Bowie. Like it's a show you're trying to communicate, you know, this feeling. Um, and so I took that from him, I'd, I'd like to think. <laughs> yeah. Another one that I noticed on your bio was you too. Yeah. So that's, a again, so Bowie and, and Bono, which are my, I have only three tattoos. <laughs> one is um, my Bono, which I'm, I'm showing you. I know the, the viewers <laughs> can't see, but um so the story with this is I this I got this in Cleveland uh, the last 
night of their last tour, the Songs of Experience tour, because they did the Songs of Innocence, the Songs of Experience. So I got to thank Bono for the story I'm about to tell you. Um, So when I was 12, my mom, around that time period, my mom had bought Joshua Tree and she was playing Joshua Tree. And I remember just, again, being blown away, you know, completely absorbed the music And the thing that I found fascinating was my mom had taught me that Bono was a huge supporter of um, Mandela and that he was a big advocate for human rights. And I just couldn't believe that someone who was a rock star was so involved in social justice issues that really struck me that, you know, I was familiar with John Lennon, you know, and his his causes. And that was great. I loved that, you know, Lennon was so causey. But, you know, again, I sadly, I was very young when Lennon died, so I didn't get to live through it. So seeing Bono being so active really affected me. And I thought, wow, the power of music is that you can get people to be aware of these certain issues, you know, if you want. And so I became a huge U2 fan. Again, same thing use allowance money to collect records, what my mom, like it wasn't good enough for me. My mom had records, but I wanted my own, you know? And I have vivid memory of, I was able, you know, I had my license at the time. When Acting Baby came out, I went to Strawberries and all they had was the cassette. So I bought the cassette, even though I did not like cassettes. And then I had to wait and get the CD. But I had to hear that now. And there was no online music at that time in 1990. So I bought the cassette and I remember ripping it open, popping it in the the cassette player in the car. I was like, oh, I can listen to this in the car and listen to the CD at home. So I have Actung Baby in both places, you know? So I just became a huge U2 fan. And then when I was in Black Barbie, I found out that U2 were staying at the Four Seasons and that they would often, after the show, sign things before they went into their hotel. So um, this was during the Pop Mart tour. And Mm -hmm. so I brought my band seven inch and I was ready to give it to Bono or the edge, whoever was, you know, coming out to chat. And so this was the time again, no phones to take photos, just a regular camera. And, uh, I brought my guitar player and we waited and sure enough around 1230, you two came back to the hotel and there was about 20 people waiting and, Bono started making his way through the line and he stopped and I said to him, you are the Yates of this age because, you know, I was an English major yeah. and I know that Bono's lyrics that he he really struggles and he revises and he'll often like, you know, they call it Bongolese. He, he makes sounds when they're recording, but he doesn't often have lyrics and he will sometimes write lyrics and toss things out. You know what I mean? They're not, the song isn't always complete when they go to record. Yeah. So I, I called him the Yates of this age and he said, oh, I can't accept that compliment. And, <laughs> but I gave him the record and then he looked at the record and our record was a photo of Shane McGowan from the Pogues, who I had interviewed for Salem State Radio, and he was holding Black Barbie's cassette. So it was Shane holding my band's cassette on the cover of the vinyl. Yeah. And Bono said, oh, we played with the Pogues. Of course, I knew this. And I was like, yeah. "Yeah." And my mind was like, this is great. I just wanted to keep the conversation going. And people were getting annoyed because they wanted Bono to sign. Yeah, but yeah. Bono was just, yuck, 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 yuck. So anyway, um, fast forward, you know, another, because you 2 at one point didn't tour. They, you know, they would tour every five to six years. So I got to talk to him again for the 360 tour. And I said, oh, Bono, can I come up and sing? And he was like, you know, laughing and joking with me. And then... The Songs of Experience tour, which was 2015, I gave him the knock-up CD. And I said, Bono, can I come up, come up and sing? Because for this specific tour, every night on the E stage, the small stage, during the like acoustic, more mellow stuff, they would pull somebody up to play. Mm-hmm. He said, do we have a guitar player? And it was always males. Like if you look at the history of this tour, you'll see during the tour, they probably pulled up three women. One is myself. One is a bass player. And the bass player actually played a couple of songs on bass. But there were very few 
women, if you get my drift. So um, I said, can, can I play? And he said, you never know how these things will turn out. And so that night when the show started, his bodyguard came, he does this like, oh, this acapella thing walkout. Mm-hmm. And his body bo- bodyguard had his headset and he walked by, well, because I wait, we wait in line for hours to be in the front. It's just like, you two day for me means get up at 5 a.m., get down to the venue, get a number. You know, it's a long process. I cannot be in a seat. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those people for any anything. Like if I am passionate about music, I want to be in the front. I want to see the sound check if I can. You know what I mean? That's who I am. So we wait all day. So anyways, we, that's how, because people ask me, how are you in the front? So I have to tell that. So we were in the front of the E stage and uh, the bodyguard came walking out and he pointed at himself and pointed at his eyes to my eyes, like, keep your eyes on me. And so um, you two moved to the East stage towards the latter half of the second set, I want to say. And they started doing the end of the world from Actung Baby. And during the like, in the garden, I was playing the tide. I kissed your lips and bro-. Bono came over to me and was singing at me, like, you know, giving a hundred percent. And I was giving it right back, singing right back. And it's like, that's all on film, which is cool. But then they, they did a little like, um, snippet of the Rolling Stones, Miss You. Mm-hmm. And during that, he said, I hear there's a lot of people, Edge, who are dying to meet you. And he met, met me. And so after that song, he said, where's the girl? Where's the girl who wants to play guitar? And he went to pull me up and he almost tripped and fell. And what's interesting is the start of the tour, he did actually fall off the stage. So his well-being is very yeah, important. Yeah. So he, he he pulled me up and we did a little conference and he said, um, do you know all I want is you? And ironically, in January, I had played that song at my best friend Donna's daughter's wedding. Oh, so wow. I did know that song. However, I wanted to play a telly plugged in. I wanted to do desire. So in my mind, if this was ever going to happen, it was going to be a rock and roll event where I was going to like give it, you know? And when they handed me the acoustic, I was just, I'm not, again, people would be like, how could you be so cheeky? It's not that I wasn't grateful. Of course I was, but you know, I wanted to rock. I didn't want to be like, like, you know, wedding bands. So, you know, these things are all rehearsed and not that mine was, but that there's timing and the set is the set and with you two with lighting and there's no variation. So I smiled and it was funny because he was like yelling out the chords. We were doing a little quick, like 10 second rehearsal. And he was like, D, D. And I'm like, I know D. And then right when we started the song, he messed up the lyrics, <laughs> which was really funny because like you said diamonds and ring of gold. He's, he, you know, cause he had, he had started to hesitate on, it was funny. So, um, <laughs> I'm up there and I was in the moment of, I have to play this song. And cause people say, weren't you afraid? Weren't you scared? And I wasn't afraid or scared. All I was thinking was, I want them to be happy with what I do. I don't want to make a mistake. But I mean, again, we're talking like four chords. It's not rocket science. They didn't say solo, Gretchen. But the best part was when he brought me up, he said, hello. And, you know, what is your name? And I said, Gretchen from the knockups. It just came out of my mouth because, and so he said, the knockups is your band. And he said it like at least three times. So that was great promo from my (laughs) band, you know? And so um, during the song, when you get to the edges solo, we had were lined up and I just, as I do with my bass player, because she's such a great musician, she does solos in my band. So I naturally step back when it's a solo for her. So I just stepped back. And then at the end, Bono came over to me and did like a come over and face the audience with his arm. And my brain just, I just started singing, even though I didn't have a mic. So there's the photo that's like my famous photo is me playing and singing, but I'm not, you can't hear me because I don't have a mic. So that was like, of course, life altering experience, which it always comes up, you know, around Boston music scene, like 
the girl who played with you too. <laughs> so that's the story, really. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any specific punk bands that got you really kind of interested in punk? I will absolutely answer that. And it actually ties to the part two that I didn't tell you is after the YouTube performance, um, that very next night during the final Boston U2 show, there were four shows on that tour. The final night during the encore, I had given Bono and Adam and Edge CDs and T-shirts of the band. Yeah. That night of the last show during the encore, Adam Clayton came on stage with the knockups T-shirt on. Oh, nice. So, and he had been wearing punk bands, not you know, hugely known, but like, you know, known to us, but probably yeah. not known to the average bear, you know. Um, but he was wearing Virgin Prunes, um, Buzzcocks, and Adam Clayton is such a supporter of punk rock. Yeah. So for me, that was, people say, you know, oh, you must have been blown away. To be honest with you, my move of Can I Play With You was a move of assertion. So to have Adam wear my shirt, that was the... Ultimate compliment, yeah. ultimate compliment. And whenever I see Adam, I've, you know, I've been to Canada, I've been to Dublin, I've been to Cleveland. When Adam sees me, he has a big smile for me and people around me are always like, cause he knows me, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so, um, yeah, so that I had to throw that in there. No, that's, that's great. very important. Yeah. Um, so for punk bands, when I was young, like 15, First started playing, I really loved like the X-ray specs and the slits and Susie and the Banshees. And, you know, I love the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and the Clash, of course. But I loved that, you know, Susie Sue was a woman who was playing in all these underground punk rock clubs. She was getting bottles thrown at her and she didn't care. Yeah. Um, you know, Blondie, I don't consider Blondie a punk band, and people will can agree or disagree with that. But you know, um, I would say that for for early punk rock bands that I liked, you know, it was like The Clash, The Ramones, The Usuals. Yeah. Um, and then I just again worked my way through, as you always do when you're into something. I got into Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys and the Dead Milkmen, and I loved. Again, like with the Dead Kennedys and Henry Rollins, of course, you know, there can be a message. Like I always like the message. What is yeah. the message, you know? So now uh, let's go back to the knockups when you put that band together. Yeah. So you had the song, mm -hmm. Knock You Up, yeah. that was kind of the impetus for that idea. Yeah. What else kind of thematically were you? Sure. Um, the second song I wrote, I believe, uh, going back into my archives <laughs> of my mind, uh, was Shut Up and Put Your Dress On, mm -hmm. which many people often interpret as, oh, we're talking about you're talking to the woman. But I actually wrote that for men because at the time, uh, you know, I was thinking a lot about how men can wear dresses and do wear dresses and that it doesn't always have to be, oh, women wear the dresses and men wear the pants. And that's another thing that I sort of brought with, you know, came came to be in my mind from Bowie and, and the song Boys, mm -hmm. um, where Bowie just takes on all of those roles. I, I, I don't know if you've seen the video for Boys from the Lodger album, but, you know, Bowie is in drag, if you will, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. Um, and so Shut Up and Put Your Dress On is the story told is the woman saying to the man, you go and you put the dress on, you know, you go look pretty, you know, yeah. if you will. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there was that. Um, and then a lot of songs again, you know, come from my bass player loves to answer this question because, you know, I'm, I'm the songwriter. And mm -hmm. so for her, she can be a little more objective. Um, and she'll say that I come from a real narrative stance where it's storytelling where I might bring in a character like for example we have a song called Black Rose which talks about you know a woman being judged for the cho choices that she makes and I sing it in third person you know she she does this in the daylight and she you know she is a black rose because society still shuns a woman for being assertive and being aggressive and you know not being 
dictated these are the norms going against the grain, if you will. So there's definitely autobiography in that, I think. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, again, women have come so far in music, but as you know, there's it's always a battle. Um, you know, my bass player and I, we don't like to complain and we observe. And oftentimes when we're loading in, we get what we call backhanded compliments like, oh, I love chicks in bands. And mm-hmm. it's, again, like why, you know, we, we identify as women. However, we don't want to be, oh, that's why you want to come and you're going to stay now. You're, you've decided to stay because we're women. Do you know what I mean? We like to think that, oh, you like the music. And it's great when we play a bar where people aren't there to hear us and then they are like, wow, and they're like rocking out. That's mm-hmm. great. We love that. So, but, um, you know, it's, again, I feel like, I don't know if I would say music as a whole, women are equal. Even though we strive, women strive to be, I still feel like you're always reminded, you know, that of yeah. your gender. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You play like a guy, right? <laughs> I have gotten that. I have yeah. got that that comment. And initially, you're like, oh, that's a compliment, Kurt Cobain. But then you're yeah. like, is it? Yeah, is it? You know, because Joan Jett, you know, she, I feel like, is the pioneer for being a very, you know, aggressive, even though I interviewed her for uh, Salem State Radio when I oh, was yeah. an undergrad, and she's a very shy person. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, she had bottles thrown at her, and people called her names, you know, every name in the book. And, again, she she speaks a lot about this in the documentary that, that just came out. I don't know yeah, if you saw I it. Yeah, I saw it, yeah. Yeah, and, and she says that, you, you know, for lack of a, a better term, you know, women who play music are sluts, you know? They just want to play music so they can get with uh, musician men. And it's like, yeah, we learn an instrument. You've got it all figured out. Yeah, right. <laughs> we learned an instrument so we can date a guitar player, you know? Like, I mean, it's just, it's uh, amazing that these comments are still made. And another thing that I'm going to add to this uh, while I'm on the, on, the, on the soapbox of this topic is that um, I've found since I was 15 years old until present that whenever I work with men who are not – right now I'm in an all-female band, and yeah. it's so refreshing. It's a wonderful experience. Um, but I have many male musician friends, and from – like I said, from my early days until now, whenever I have played with men, the girlfriend becomes jealous, you know, has – felt that it wasn't okay for them to play with me because I'm a woman. And I have, like I said, a huge range, drummers, guitar players, bassists, you know, many men that are still near and dear friends to me. Uh, But I have found that their partners are not comfortable. And this, like I said, I wish it was one case, but multiple cases. And it's really saddening to me because I look at music, and again, this is might sound an ex- extreme, but I always say this to all my friends, my music friends that I, I work with, is sex is an act that anyone can do. Creating music with someone is not an act that anyone can do. Yeah. You know? And, and, and it's not that, like, romantic love is amazing and great, but music... For me, if I didn't have music in my life, I don't know if I would walk around and be able to breathe and function. Yeah. You know, music is is there for me when I'm happy, when I'm sad, when I'm angry, you know. Music is is such a huge part of my life. And I think playing music, that bond that you have with people that you create with and that you, you perform with, there is nothing like it. It's just undescribable. And, and again, I don't mean to sound snobby, but if someone doesn't understand that experience, they cannot understand. And I don't know if it's they feel threatened or jealous about that bond that happens. Anyway, I could go on. But I'm right now I'm working with all females. And not to say that romantic love can't happen there because it, cause it can, yeah. but it hasn't. So uh, I just, I had to add that. Well, no. And actually that was something I was going to ask you about. You know, we're in a moment now where there's a lot of people in some other industries have been 
talking about all of these issues of sexism and, and misogyny and, and stuff that's been going on for years, like in the film industry and stuff. And we know that this happens a lot in music. Yeah. I, I feel like in music, we haven't quite had our Me Too moment mm. yet. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I have not had many incidents, thankfully, but one particular incident uh, happened with someone who I had worked with at mm-hmm. a radio station and years later had reconnected with through concert promotion and I had helped and I, I will the the artist isn't at fault, so I will name the artist. Um, I was uh, working a show for the Psychedella Furs where I was responsible for making sure that, you know, they had their dinner when they came off the stage and, you know, they were happy basically. And I took um, some of the members uh, around Salem, Mass, to tour around, you know, um, the saxophone player and the keyboard player who are dear, really dear people. And, you know, I still have contact with them. Yeah. Uh, but the promoter of that event then told me after I had worked that particular event that another band was coming to town a very big band, and that if I were to fulfill a sexual favor, my band could open. And he said it in a joking way, but he was not joking. And even if it was a joke, you don't joke about things like that. And I immediately, you know, ended all communications with that person. And it really made me very angry because not only did I work for that particular show and I, you know, I really worked hard and I actually brought in my friend Donna, who's the U2 friend of mine that I had mentioned who I played at her daughter's wedding. Um, She worked at a hotel at the time and she was responsible for organizing big events. So she helped me with that event. And, you know, so I brought in extra help to make this a great experience for them. And so, you know, it really upset me that not only did I help with the event, but that my band, who is absolutely capable of putting on a 30-minute opening set that is going to blow you away, high energy, no stops, you know, unless someone's out of tune. You know, we really pride ourselves on a lively performance where we give 100%. And so it was really upsetting to me that anything needed to be asked like that. So... But other than that, thankfully, (laughs) that was my only rock and roll horrible moment in terms of something like that. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about your Bowie project that you're doing now. Sure. Um, So I teach at Berklee College of Music, and I am in the fortunate position of uh, being able to present ideas. Uh, And so this past spring, well, in the spring we're currently in now, yeah. <laughs> um, I had written a proposal about a course that looked at the literary influences of David Bowie. Um, I had gone in May to the Brooklyn Museum to see the exhibit of all of David Bowie's costumes and, you know, um, some lyric sketches and, you know, um, just lots of, 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 um, things that he brought on tour with him, some instruments, not a lot. But, um, one of the things that struck me was he had a road case that could probably fit a, a medium sized keyboard, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty big road case. And in it were paperbacks and we got to get up close and look at what they were. And there was D.H. Lawrence and Dante and, um, uh, George Orwell's 1984 and, you know, many, many, many classics. And so I then did some reading when I got home about, you know, books that Bowie had been influenced by. And one particular was George Orwell's 1984. Many people may know that Diamond Dogs album, which came out in, in, in 74, Mm. 74. He wanted to stage a musical of 1984, and George Orwell, he had begun this, and George Orwell's widow said, no, 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 you will not take my husband's great masterpiece and do this. So Diamond Dogs, if you listen closely, you know, it's, I mean, there's 1984, 1984, like, so it's, it's all there. So that was the seed for me of how can we 
have a course. We're teaching musicians. They have to have a literature requirement. How can we have them be excited, you know, learn about these classics? And so um, I chose um, the Iliad, uh, Dante's Inferno, and 1984 because there's the idea of the hero's journey. And in each, of course, there's a character. And as you may know, you know, Bowie developed characters. So um, what, what we're doing is we read the novels and we look at the themes presented and we juxtapose those themes with themes of Bowie's work and, you know, Bowie's character, Bowie's hero's journey. And so it's been amazing. Um, We're now in the month of April and I have a a friend who worked at the BBC and who is coming to show us some clips of the floor show, which is Diamond Dogs. You know, he's doing a lot many of the songs off Diamond Dogs on there. So I have a, a guest speaker coming for for them. Um, I've, we went to the planetarium at the Science Museum when they did the Bowie show. We watched Labyrinth uh, outside of class. So I've been in the really fortunate position. I can't even say that this is like not work. <laughs> yeah. I'm so grateful that this is my job. And so I, I'm thrilled. I, I began working on this in January when I got the go-ahead. So I spent my, my, my break from teaching, reading, and going through albums. and so. But I don't like to, to do it all because I want to give the students the opportunity you know, to do some digging themselves. So I've been able to, in my essay assignments, say, use songs that we've done in class, but please feel free to bring in your own. And the first batch of essays that I received, you know, I was oh, I just was like oh, nervous. You know, what am I going to get? And they have blown me away because, you know, you have to remember these aren't English majors. And I've presented to them, you know, not only literary themes, but literary criticism. I mean, I'm teaching them something that is out of their their normal comfort zone. So it's been very refreshing and the reward um, in May, we're going to have one day, I have an ensemble room for them and I've said, those who wanna do some Bowie songs, um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna play. So <laughs> that's, yeah. that's always fun and I'm gonna be bringing in um, a friend of mine who uh, does a Bowie tribute show called um, The Young Americans. So he's gonna come and play with them too, so. You know, I try to take what they love, which is also what I love, <laughs> and, 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 and bridge the two together. So I, it's been, I think, a success so far. Yeah. Actually, I'm not sure if, if we made it clear. This is mm-hmm. a class. Yes. And so I know you've got at least one freshman in there. What's yeah. kind of the makeup of the... Sure. Yeah. So we have... I'm in the fortunate position of doing Living Learning Community, mm-hmm. which is a program for freshmen at Berkeley and the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley, where students live on the same floor and they take courses together. Not all their courses, yeah. But um, so I taught a course in the fall in the LENS program called Mass Incarceration. And so many of those students who took that class are actually in my Bowie class um, because they do the LENS course, which, you know, asks them to think critically and process topics. Um, Well, that's my particular course. Uh, But then they have to take their literature component. So they had the option to take you know, my course or other courses. So what's nice is these students are comfortable with one another. They, they know one another. Um, they've collaborated with each other at some point. So it's a real, like, you know, comfy, safe zone. Yeah. Um, I forgot to ask you, what did you do with the smithereens? Ah, okay. So again, I had been, you know, working a concert and helping out um, because I love when I'm not playing, I like to help other musicians. That's, you know, I, my bass player always jokes, don't break anything on stage because Gretchen will jump up and, and try to help you, which is true. It's just, again, so they were performing and I saw they were going to do um, a girl like you, but there was no Belinda Carlisle in the room that I yeah, could yeah. see. So I said, can I do a girl like you? I'm in a band called the knockups. And so I jumped up and I sang that. And sadly he just passed away a couple yeah. of years ago. So I'm 
glad that I had that experience. Um, yeah. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's any video of it, believe it or not, though, which is sad. There's photos. Yeah. I couldn't believe nobody went live on Facebook, right? I know. <laughs> so now, you know, the knockups you played the Rock and Roll Rumble. Yeah. Which, 2016. Yeah, which is a big honor. Yes, definitely. Know. And also was a boot camp because we rented a soundstage so we could rehearse. So our show, you know, we called in friends that were in the music business, an audio engineer, Joel Simchez, who we love and we use often yeah. do sound for us. And we had them, I told them, beat us up. I said, I don't, you're not going to hurt my feelings. You're not going to make me cry. Beat us up. We want notes. And so my godfather, who's been playing out since the 70s, you know, we called on people to really give us advice and it made us, perf not perfect, nobody's perfect, but it really made our performance better. And we played on it live on uh, Somerville Local Access TV last Wednesday night. And, you know, we had a couple of technical issues, you know, because I'm jumping around and I stepped on my tuner. So guitar went out for a second, my bass player, something happened with a pedal. And we both were really hard on ourselves. And I looked at her and I said, Kat, do you want to stand there and be perfect? Or do you want to put on a show and have energy? Because the difference between players who stand there like Jesus and Mary Chain, I love them, but do not go see them live because yeah. they they stand there. Yeah, um, that's what happens when you you run around. You make unless you're unless you're wireless. Even then, you never know, you know. So we learned a lot. I'm very grateful to Boston Emissions for having us. Um, it was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. So we didn't make it to the finals, but you know, hey. We learned, and that's what it's about. And we made so many great friends, um, yeah. Salem's Wolves, um, Devil's Twins, you know, so many local bands that we became pals with after that. So you've talked a little bit about Kat, your bass player. Um, what about your drummer? How did you meet her? Interesting connection. I learned at a U2 conference I was at a month ago that my drummer, Marissa Young, uh, who's been with us since February of last year, her mom is best friends with a U2 pal of mine. So talk about It's a Small World. Yeah, she yeah. said, because she's been following my band, and she said, I saw little Marissa is in your band. <laughs> so um, we put an ad in Craigslist, yeah. and we did not audition more than three people, and Marissa was the the, the perfect fit. Um, she, I, you know, she's professional. She doesn't drink or, you, I mean, you know, we have a few beers, but, you know, we don't drink before we play or we do not use drugs. So I have had experiences with drummers over the years who are not professional and it gets tiring. Um, she shows up on time. She practices without the band. I've found a lot of times the drummers don't practice on their own. And she comes in prepared. She wants demos so she can work on them. Um, I generally don't tell my drummers what to play because I'm not a drummer, but I'll say like what I want and I'll talk about the emotions and dynamics. Um, and so she's she's just been great. And she, she works at Emerson, um, which is really cool and interesting because for my mass incarceration course, there was a one woman play about mass incarceration that was coming to town in the fall. And she alerted me and I was able to get tickets for my classes, um, Berkeley, you know, shout out to Ryan and Housing, who uh, who who um, gave us a little bit of a, a grant, if you will, and was able to fully fund my entire group of students, which I had four sections to go and see this play. And so Emer uh, Emerson, which is where uh, Marissa is, um, you know. It's funny how all the worlds sort of intersect, you know, yeah. at, at times. Okay, so now, because that was a great segue, <laughs> tell me about your mass incarceration project. Yeah, so um, I started teaching at Cambridge College in 2006, and Cambridge College is a school where oftentimes adults who did not finish their degree for whatever reason, you know, life happens, um, older students tend to go to Cambridge College because it's, you know, it's a working it's an environment where students are working, taking care of families. So in 2010, I, I teach a writing course that, that's a research course. And I tell students, you know, I don't want to read 19 papers on gun control. 
You pick your topic. You choose something that you're passionate about. So I had this woman choose a topic on women and trauma, specifically women who have been in prison and, you know, the trauma that they've experienced in their lives and how they've ended up in prison, essentially. And so, you know, this this woman, whose name is Stacy Borden, um, was just, you know, really wanted to learn and revised until the cows came home. You know, she just was very passionate about her work. And on the last day of class, we do presentations. And she presented her paper and she said to the class, I'm so passionate about this topic because I have been in and out of the prison system three times. And I think everyone in the room, their jaw hit the floor. You know, I was blown away at her bravery. And she proceeded to tell us her story. And, you know, she had spoke about, you know, being an incest survivor and as a teenager turning to drugs to numb the pain as people do. And then getting into stealing, which ended her, in, you know, landed her in Framingham Women's Prison. And I was just so blown away because most of us don't think about people in prison. You know, we get in our cars, we go to work, we worry about our lives. We don't worry about people who are locked away because, quote unquote, those are the bad people. You know, we are we have it ingrained in our minds that bad people go to prison. We're protected from these bad people. But I've come to learn that that is not true (laughs) and that um, many, and I can only really speak, you know, at length about women because that's what my focus is. Um, Women in prison have 90% of the time experienced some form of trauma. Um, And I'm not saying that women do not murder people without a reason. I'm not saying that, but, um, I'm saying that the, the root is usually trauma of some sort. And then they go to prison. They do not receive the mental health care services. They do not receive proper job training. They don't receive, you know, help with keeping up to date with technology. And then their reentry services are little to none from what I have read what I've experienced through Stacy in terms of going in uh, to the prison system. Um, I now um, work with Stacy. She graduated from Cambridge College and went on to pursue her master's in human services. And in 2015, opened up New Beginnings Women's Reentry Services, which is a program that helps women who are reentering society get back on their feet. It's an 18-month program, and um, women receive mental health services, counseling, support, clothes to interview. You know, um, we're working. I'm, I'm on Stacy's board. Um, she asked me would I serve on her board, so that's something that I do um, as well. Uh, and you know, she, this topic, my experience with Stacy as a student and as a human being, you know, like they say, touched my soul. And I just decided that I could use my time in the classroom to educate people on this topic. And so I wrote a course on mass incarceration, um, using two texts, um, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, which is really the book that got the conversation started on mass incarceration, and Understanding Mass Incarceration by James Kilgore that came out about five years later that deals with the LGBT community in prison and immigration uh, issues. And anyway, I could go on and on and on, but um, so this has just become a topic that's near and dear to me. And I think back to my days as a 12-year-old being influenced by Bono. And for me, I think like, I just, you know, you become the person that, you know, you're meant to be, I think. And so again, music, I feel led me to, to being an activist, I Mm -hmm. would say, and a champion of, of, of social justice, if you will. Let's see. So you've done, uh, as the knockups, you've done an EP, right? Yes. Yep. And we've just finished recording three new songs at Babyland Studios um, with Mike Berry, wonderful sound engineer. Um, and his his motto is, it's all about the song, which mm-hmm. really spoke to me. Um, and, you know, everything that you hear, we did. We didn't bring in any other musicians. I really 
One of the things that I strive for when we play is I don't want you to hear something on the record that you're not going to hear live. And I know, you know, there's always overdubs of guitar. Of course, we we did do some of that. But vocally, I try to have it be what you're going to hear live. I remember being very disappointed. I thought that there were two women in the Cranberries. And when I went to see them live, all of those harmonies were missing. So not to disrespect those who are no yeah, longer yeah. with us. But I just know for myself, I want to, you get what you hear, you know? Yeah, yeah. I do my local music show called Local Music Now, which is through BevCam, where I have bands come on and they play about six songs and then I interview them after they play. And that's on uh, Beverly Access TV. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I sprung that on you. No, that's cool. <laughs> Surprise! I, I didn't know about that. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's called Local Music Now, and it's on Facebook and YouTube. We put the episodes up on YouTube. On YouTube, so. okay. Local and also, it, it airs on Beverly Access TV, but you know, you got to be in the local area. For and that. is that a monthly or a It's week? Monthly, monthly, yeah. We okay. do monthly, yep. So you, we can find you on Facebook. Yes. Right? Yep, the knockups on Facebook. You also have a band camp. We do, yep, and we have Spotify, and <laughs> does anyone use Reverb Nation anymore? I don't no. know. <laughs> yeah, don't and know. we have an Instagram, the knockups on uh -huh. Instagram. And are you on stuff. Twitter? Too? We are, oh, we're on Twitter. We don't Any other kind of big gigs or anything? Yeah, we, um, we got to play in Dublin the week of the U2 shows for the Songs of Innocence tour, um, you know, after me playing with U2. It seemed to make sense. Yeah. To, uh, so we, we played one gig in Temple Bar, which was great because that's a place that U2 used to play in the club days. Oh, wow. So um, we've played as far as Dublin. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to plug or, sure. or just please go to... out and support local music. I know that you have Netflix and I know that, you know, you can watch it on Facebook live, but I think, you know, for musicians as well, we want your energy. We want you to enjoy music. We, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's important, I think, to support one another as well. Um, musicians going out and seeing other musicians. So support local music. And I guess I would also lastly say, um, you know, think about people who haven't had as a fortunate life as yourself. Um, if you've been able to get through your, your day-to-day experiences without having had any harm done to you, you're lucky. So, um, I think, Please don't consider people who are in prison as quote unquote bad people. They're not necessarily bad people. <laughs> um, and when I say that, I often talk about, you know, nonviolent offenders because um, I think it's important to, to make the distinction because people like to jump on me and say, what about people who have raped? You know what I'm saying? So I'm just throwing it out there, you know? What you were saying about support local music made me think about what I've been noticing you know, the past four or five years in terms of the Boston music scene. And yeah. since you're a veteran of that scene, yeah. you know, with like T.T. the Bears closing, yeah. Johnny D's, yeah. you know, um, what do you... Th yeah, I think it's, a, as they say, it's a sign of the times. However, new club just opened in Somerville, The Jungle. I, I believe it opens May 10th. Mm -hmm. They're now booking... Um, Kodo in Salem, Opus in Salem. Salem, Mass. has been a wonderful, you know, um, place for music. Really great about paying bands fairly, mm -hmm. promoting. I haven't played there yet, but we're playing there in August. Uncharted in Lowell is an art space. Um, so there are places, um, but I would say that, again, sign of the times with people having phones and, you know, they're, they're – you can do and experience so much at home. And so that's what we're, we're competing against, you know? Mm -hmm. But you can't talk to people like you can when you're at a club and you, you can't learn about all the music online, you know? And I think seeing a band play, play live is an experience that is not removed, you know? So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, this, the new, this new club, The Jungle, mm -hmm. that's opening, um... And like I said, the, the North Shore music scene is is thriving. Okay, um, yeah. Hopefully this might pay, hey, might reignite. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, so. another thing too is this, for whatever reason, need to have music until 1 a.m. 
you know, that's really, really late. And a friend of mine, Gene Dante, um, had mentioned to me when he played at, um, out in LA at the Whiskey, he said that the band was on stage by six o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason, I think having sets start at like midnight is, is simply, we are up against public transportation shutting down. So it doesn't make any sense. So I would say to venues, please consider having shows begin at eight. Like let's compromise. Maybe not, you know, not having music till midnight, but at least not having the band start at midnight. But so now you're finding still some opportunities to play around here. Oh yeah. I mean, in the early days I would seek gigs and now we don't, I, I'm very busy just professionally, you know, um, my life is, you know, there's an event, it seems every week. Um, and so I don't, I'm not asserting us, you know, we're not like seeking gigs. We, yesterday we had three opportunities for gigs. We took one of them. So the gigs are coming to us, which I'm grateful and and fortunate. And again, like, you know, I get by with a little help from my (laughs) friends. So local bands that have, bills and they ask us to play, you know, we're very grateful. Um, so we've been fortunate with that. So I can't, can't complain. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, any other? No, no. Okay. I think we, I think we got it yeah. all. I think. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So that's it for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the Fringe Collective podcast. Give us a rating on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fringe collective. Thanks again. See you next time.